I will never forget the very first glimpse I had of the Grand Canyon. It was early in the day and the sun was just coming up over the rim and the lights and shadows were playing off the rocks in very vivid ways. And as I walked up to the edge and looked over, I gasped. I literally gasped at the vast breadth and depth that opened up before me. I stood there in wonder and just soaked it in. My family spent the rest of the day driving around the rim and we looked down into the canyon from a bunch of different angles and all kinds of different sunlight. Each view was distinct and I just had this continuing sense of wonder and awe at what God had created and what time had brought to bear on that part of the Arizona desert. Now before that I'd seen pictures of the Grand Canyon People who had visited there had told me about it, but none of that could prepare me for my encounter with the real thing. There are some things that are simply beyond description, and they only become real when we experience them. And it's true for many of the wonders of our world, and it's also true of heaven. And we can read about heaven, and yet its wonders will be so vast that we won't be able to fully appreciate them until we're there. In fact, heaven will be so distinct that I think God could have said, hey, after death, there's heaven. I'll fill you in on the details when you arrive. But thankfully, God doesn't want us to wait for eternity in a state of ignorance. He wants us to live with a sense of anticipation for what's next. And yes, it's true, we cannot fully understand it till we're there, but he wants us to know that the life to come will be so much richer than anything we've ever experienced. And he wants that knowledge to shape how we live today. And that's why the Bible gives us some glimpses of the incredible hope of heaven Glimpses such as we find in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. The Apostle John is writing and says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then listen to this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I don't know about you, but I love the book of Revelation. But admittedly, it's a very weird book. So I call it a wild, weird, and wonderful book. And it is all those things because it's a a prophetic vision given to the Apostle John. And he writes using apocalyptic language, which is highly symbolic, and that makes it a challenge to interpret. And so believers differ over the details, but the big picture is readily apparent. And here at the end of Revelation, the big picture is that God is going to establish his perfect kingdom forever by making all things new. However, the Greek New Testament has two different words for new. 
One means brand new, such as God's original act of creation when he made the universe out of nothing at all. That was brand new. The other Greek word, though, means taking something that already exists and renovating it to make it new. And that's the word used in this passage. Heaven will not be a creation, but a renovation. Here's perhaps a way to visualize this. If you live in a house that you think needs to be updated, you could just bring in a bulldozer and level it. Then you could make a whole house that's brand new and looks nothing at all like the previous house that was there. Or you could renovate the existing house and do a dramatic makeover. And that second one is like what God will do at some point in the future. And that's what the Apostle John describes here. And so the kingdom of heaven will be a renovation of what the Bible calls the first heaven, which is our atmosphere around our planet, and then a renovation of the earth itself. And so when we experience heaven, we're going to experience heaven on earth in a place of perfection for all eternity. And this means that our new home, our eternal home, will be, will be familiar at least in some ways because there still will be a physical earth and there's going to be cities where we will live. And yet, this new home will be so dramatically renovated that we will gasp with awe and wonder at the newness of it all. For example, we measure cities in square miles. But down in verse 16 of chapter 21, John says that the new Jerusalem is going to be measured in cubic miles. And it's going to be huge. 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. That's not how we think. I don't know what that means to live in a cubically measured city. I can't fully grasp it. But I do know this. It means we're going we're to inhabit the newly renovated earth in a new way. In other scriptures, we're told that the streets of heaven will be paved with gold. And that there will be priceless jewels decorating things everywhere. I, I don't know if that's literal or figure, figurative, but it's clear that John wants us to know that our future home will be a place of incredible beauty. Glittering beauty, dazzling beauty. And here's the most beautiful thing of all. God will eliminate forever the curse of death that resulted from human sin in the Garden of Eden. And so, as we read here in verse 4, God's renovation will wipe away the old order of things to give us a fresh start in his eternal kingdom. A kingdom defined by a new reality where pain does not exist. Oh, isn't that good news? And particularly as we get older and deal with the aches and pains and infirmities of life, won't be there in our eternal home. It's not just the elimination of physical pain, it's the elimination of emotional pain because this will be a kingdom without sorrow. And I, and I don't know how that works. Either our memories of the past are going to be wiped out or we'll be able to remember them without sorrow. But either way, no sorrow. It will be a kingdom where daily life will be free from anxiety and anguish. And because there's no sin, we will be released from our pride and our greed and our injustice and all the other selfish things we do that bring tension and conflict into our relationships. 
followers of Jesus from every nation, every ethnic group, every racial group, every language group, we all will live together in harmony with God and with each other. Heaven will be a place of light and life and peace and joy. Just think of the world we now live in and let this image of heaven wash over you. Isn't it incredible what God has promised and is waiting for us? Isn't this comforting? Doesn't it fill you with hope to know what comes next? Oh, it sure does for me. I hope it does for you. And yet there's a practical question. What do we do with this vision of eternity? Do we just sort of mentally put it away on a shelf? Do we say to ourselves, I know heaven exists and it sounds great and I'm glad I'll be there someday, but it's not really relevant to my life right now? I think we sometimes may feel like that. However, the Apostle Paul has a better idea. He urges us to keep eternity in the forefront of our thinking so we will have a more healthy perspective on the ups and downs of this life. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 to 18. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. And therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Oh, and then listen to this. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul reminds us that despite the difficulties of life, eternity lies ahead. And verse 14 is God's promise to every believer that we will experience a resurrection similar to the resurrection of Jesus. He rose from the grave and so will we. We will be raised from death and live forever with God in the beautiful, pain-free, sorrow-free kingdom of heaven that we just read about in Revelation. And here's what's really important for Paul. This truth, this reality changed how he lived. Because of Jesus, Paul redefined what success and status meant in his own life and he discovered a new purpose. He turned his back on his significant standing in the Jewish community to become a devoted follower of Jesus and to become a missionary to bring the hope of Jesus and the hope of heaven to the world. You see, for Paul, heaven wasn't just a beautiful picture of the future. It was the goal upon which he fixed his gaze. And the joy of living with Jesus both now and forever was so great that he wanted to share that incredible news with as many people as possible. Paul wasn't alone. The other apostles also were changed by their trust in the promise of eternity. They had been businessmen and laborers and political zealots and they had found their meaning like so many of us do in their daily work and 
in their pursuit of profits and in the realization of their political goals until Jesus stepped into their lives. And then those things became secondary. The apostles were no longer driven by them because they understood what Paul writes here. The things of this world are best understood as light and momentary troubles. And they pale in comparison to the glory of what comes next. Eternity with God in heaven. So these passages, these passages help us see that living with the hope of heaven perpetually in our thinking can change the way that we view daily life. Living with an eternal perspective reminds us that all the stuff our culture values only is temporary. And, and oh my goodness, do we need to be reminded of that. Because our culture always will encourage us to place our hope in temporary things. And if we do, we might find ourselves saying things like this. I will feel so much more secure if I have lots of money stashed in the bank. Our problems will all be solved if my preferred candidates win the election. Now, those things are not unimportant, but that's not where we as followers of Jesus find our hope. That's not where we as followers of Jesus find our meaning. We don't fix our eyes on the temporary things that we can see because they're going to pass away. And oh, by the way, we too are going to pass away. I mean, it's an amazing fact that we are born to die. And once we reach adulthood, we start that slow, steady process of decay. And the older we get, the more we feel it. As Paul said, outwardly we're wasting away. Yet inwardly we can be renewed. You see, the most important work that God does is not in our bodies, it's done in our hearts and our minds and our souls. And so even as we physically decay, God's light and life can grow within us and prepare us for what's next. Because this life is not all there is. And we will be prepared for what comes next if we fix our eyes on what is unseen and eternal. Because of what God has revealed to us, we can fix our eyes on heaven even though it's unseen now. God has given us an awe-inspiring preview of heaven. So we can fix our eyes on eternity and live with hope today. God will renovate our reality. And that is way more important than the pandemic or the economy or the upcoming election. And I'm not trying to minimize those things. They're not unimportant. They're big and in fact they have a big impact on us. But God wants us to see them in light of this fact as big as those things are, they only are light and momentary troubles compared to the eternal glory that lies ahead. And if we can embrace that truth from God, then we can handle the challenges of our times in a much more healthy way, a much more Christ-like way. I think these passages from the Bible 
challenge us to take time to regularly think about the hope of heaven. To consider what God has promised both now and forever for us as his children. And here's my challenge to you. Let this eternal hope shape the way that you face the light and momentary troubles of your life. Embrace the incredible hope of heaven. Let it fill you with God's peace and with it's his joy. Let it change the way you deal with circumstances and deal with others. May people see the hope of Jesus and the hope of heaven in each of us.